Think about a podcast ad about a mattress. No one needs another podcast ad about a mattress, but here's the thing. Your choice of mattress is one of the most important decisions you can make in your life. It's the same thing with infrastructure monitoring. You don't think about it often, but it's one of your most important decisions as an IT professional. So get your monitoring hosted in the cloud with Pessler PRTG Hosted Monitor. Now with 50% off monthly subscriptions for new customers for the first three months. Go to PRTG.com and use the promo code PACKETPUSHERS. That's PRTG.com with the promo code PACKETPUSHERS, all one word. EVPN VXLAN is our topic today. What is it? What's it for? Should you deploy it? Since you probably already got a network, how would you add EVPN to it? Can you just turn it on or do you need special hardware? And how does EVPN impact your security design? And what are the fundamentals for engineers trying to understand how packets flow around an EVPN-based network? Our guest today is making a repeat heavy networking appearance, Tony Burke. Tony is an IT and skydiving instructor. We've known each other for years in EVPN is one of his specialties. But Tony, before we jump into our EVPN VXLAN discussion, man, you told me the other day that you've got a podcast of your very own. Tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So it's uh, the network automation journey, and it's just me talking for maybe five to 10 minutes about some various uh, automation concepts, just very simple. Uh, Me by myself, I don't have any guests or anything, and uh, you can find it on Spotify. Find it on Spotify. Is that the only place I'm going to find it? You're publishing just to Spotify at this point? Uh, yeah, right now. Maybe I'll add it to iTunes or something else, but Spotify is, is where it's at right now. Gotcha. Okay. Well, thank you for mentioning that. And uh, five to 10 minutes sounds like that's an interesting format. I it, It's easier to add that. I have so many podcasts I'm listening to these days, Tony, that... Uh, don't get listened to because they it's like it's an hour and a half long. I was like, man, I am not going to get to that. But five to ten minutes, I could definitely fit in. So yeah, they're they're way easier to do. You know, you don't have to, don't have to worry about scheduling or anything like that. So like logistically, it's just like I I've got the recording equipment, turn it on, uh, spit out some thoughts, and that's it. There you go. All right. Well, let's get into our EVPN VXLAN discussion, Tony. And let's uh, let's let's start at the beginning. I, I know EVM, EVPN and VXLAN, they've both been around for a long time, I, I guess, started with uh, VXLAN. So why don't you set the baseline for us, though? Let's assume we don't have a decade of history with this technology. Lay the baseline for us. What, what and why about EVPN and VXLAN? So EVPN VXLAN is a combination of an encapsulation technology and a control plane technology. So encapsulation is VXLAN, EVPN is the control plane. And it's it's Ethernet in UDP, essentially. We're taking Ethernet frames, we're encapsulating them into UDP datagrams with a VXLAN header, and then forwarding, forwarding them just like we would layer three. And it's meant to stretch layer two networks across layer three boundaries. And it's di- the opposite of this is the traditional core aggregation and access layer, or uh, in some cases, collapse core, where you take the aggregation and core and you turn them into the same device. So SVIs and VLANs is what I typically refer to when I'm talking about the opposite of EVP and VXLAN. So the access layers are purely layer two. And all of this came about after about 2006, because about 2006, AMD and Intel released processors with the virtualization extensions. And this basically allowed us to do virtualization with uh, almost no performance penalty. It was like one or 2% or something, something really, really small. And our data centers went through a rapid, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything in my 25 years in IT 
any technology adopted as rapidly as virtualization. So in 2006, nothing in production for the most part was, was virtualized. And then by 2010, something like 90% of most data centers were virtualized or something crazy like that. So it happened really quick. And uh, one of the key features of virtualization is the ability to vMotion or live migrate as they, uh, as some of the other vendors call it, to be able to move your workload from one hypervisor to another without shutting down that VM. So that it is very important to the server people. So we have to support that. So we have to have layer two everywhere. So that's what EVPN VXLAN gives us. It gives us that layer two everywhere. And um, it supplanted some of the other tech that was trying to do that back in that time, like you know, 2008, 2009, we got things like Trill, SPB, mm-hmm. Fabric Path. I think Trill is actually earlier than that, but those are some of the attempts to solve that layer two everywhere problem with a more flexible network topology like layer three leaf spine. But uh, EVP and VXLAN pretty much won out. Yeah, and just so we're clear, it wasn't like the only thing driving this technology was vMotion. I mean, certainly that was a big driver. That was one of the major use cases we heard about from the vendors uh, where you'd be able to put servers in you know, whatever racks, not have to have a stretched VLAN between them to facilitate um, vMotion. Now you could have a layer three core, which scales better, has better fault tolerance, um, less of a blast radius, depending on what's going wrong and have that vMotion support. Um, but there's, uh, in, the, in the modern day, Tony, there's a bunch of other use cases that have come about dealing with uh, security segmentation, uh, certainly being one of them. And, and also you mentioned Trill, SPB, uh, FabricPath, which is, was it FabricPath Trill-based? I think it was. It's been a while since I've thought about FabricPath, but. Yeah, yeah, FabricPath was Trill-based, um, but they changed just enough in it that it, it wasn't Trill-compatible. And I don't think there were, well, there's one product uh, still today, and I can't remember which vendor that uses it, and it's Trill-based. And there's another one that's actually SPB-based for the data center, but they have like 1% market share or something crazy like that. So it's well, it's that, not anything that you're likely to see. That's the point I was going to make is that some of this technology still exists in production. There's like a very small number of very large installations. There's some service providers that have done some pretty massive SPB networks, and there's some there's still some big Trill out there, I hear. Um, not, I've not worked on them in production myself, but, uh, but do believe that those still exist. But like you said, just, you know, you're pretty unlikely to actually run across them based on market share. VXLAN has won the day. Um, now you also mentioned Tony that VXLAN is, is, is the data plane. That's the encapsulation. Those are the, those mm-hmm. are the datagrams that we see going across the network an ethernet frame wrapped in VXLAN, which is, uh, which is UDP. Okay. Uh, and then EVPN is the control plane, meaning and, and if you know your history, um, anyone out there listening, you know EVPN came out later as the control plane because VXLAN was not released with a control plane. Initially, it was this sort of a multicast nightmarish thing. Uh, if you remember those days, Tony, or if, any, if you see yeah. any of that, it's still out there. No, I mean, they they were certainly there. Like you mentioned, in 2011, we got VXLAN, but the control plane was just mimicking standard flood and learn. And to do the flood and learn, you had two choices. It was either you would flood to a multicast address, and that would distribute your multicast infrastructure would distribute the flood frames to the other VTEPs, the virtual tunnel endpoints, or the VXLAN tunnel endpoints, rather. Or you could do something called head-end replication, where you would have these manual flood lists. You would maintain like so if I get a if, uh, if I get a frame that I need to flood, 
then I have this list of other VTEPs that I have to send a copy of that frame to. And, and it was purely layer two, too. So there was no integrated layer three, what we will call IRB, integrated routing and bridging. So it limited its usefulness up until we got EVPN, which put in a BGP-based control plane, which handled endpoint learning and handled layer three as well. So it became a no-brainer at that point to convert over to EVPN VXLAN. So there's very little non-EVPN VXLAN out there for, for data centers. Well, a no-brainer except for the complexity that EVPN VXLAN is to deploy, which, which we're going to get into. But, but yeah. before we do that, you mentioned VTEPs, VXLAN tunnel endpoints. Uh, which begs a question. Ten years ago, we would, if we were having a conversation about VXLAN, one of the important questions is new switching hardware came out, new ASICs were spun for line cards and for uh, fixed configuration switches. Does this ASIC support uh, VXLAN and hardware, VXLAN endpoints in uh, in hardware? Does it do that end cap in hardware? Because if it doesn't, it's not going to scale very well. And of course, for a data center application, you need it to scale. So my question to you, because I've lost track of this a little bit over the years, is it kind of a foregone conclusion that any sort of a data center class ASIC is going to support VXLAN in hardware? Yeah, for the most part, I think there's very few exceptions. And of course, you would want to double check, but it just it's basically table stakes at this point that you can support both VXLAN, NCAP, and DCAP. When the first hardware came out about 2013, so Broadcom had the Trident 2 chip, and it had a limitation where, and many of the vendors had these switches based on the Broadcom Trident 2, the Trident 2 couldn't in-cap and decap at the same time. So it could either in-cap a frame or decap a frame, but it couldn't do both. And if you want to route between one VXLAN segment to another, VXLAN routing, you have to do both. So the original Trident 2, and this is again back in 2013, I think when this chip came out, yeah. 2012, but the Trident 2 Plus and then anything subsequent uh, that supports VXLAN can do it. So you're right. It's a foregone conclusion that just about any switch you get today can do VXLAN and can do VXLAN routing. So it's not really a question anymore. Again, double check, but it's not anything we really need to, to it's, not a, it's not a high concern. And I guess another point to make, depending on how old these switches are that you've got in production, and we know network hardware sometimes has a very long life, it may not be able to do VXLAN and may not have the capability, no matter how much you upgrade the software, to, to do this at a scale that you might need. So again, another thing you know worth checking might just be not on new stuff. Uh, well, as Tony said, you still want to check it, but look at your old stuff, especially yeah. to see what the VXLAN specific capabilities might be. Yeah, mostly you see it when people buy like an Arista switch off of eBay for like $300 and it's something from that era and then they... You know, you run into that that limitation, but um, for the most part, in the data center, we've been pretty lucky that our our lifespans for switches are generally a lot shorter than um, some of the other areas of networking. At least, you know, very generally, broadly speaking, here, uh, so it should not be a problem. Uh, but of course, double check. I have heard, um, and my understanding is, uh, EVPN and VXLAN is that's primarily a data center application. That is, I'm running a data center at scale. It's probably a leaf spine architecture. I need to go wide with this thing and support thousands of nodes. I'm not going to be extending layer two all over the place. That would be a blast radius too big. Bad network design for such an architecture. Therefore, I'm going to go EVPN VXLAN, which would allow me to put whatever VLAN I need in whatever rack and uh, still have the safety and the design benefits of a layer three architecture. And that's where, therefore, I'm going to do my EVPN VXLAN. 
But uh, it's it's coming up in more and more places, Tony, where eVPN is and VXLAN are being used for a variety of different reasons, not just that data center leaf spine architecture that I was describing. So so walk us through why I might in 2023 want to do eVPN VXLAN. Another reason is you might have a more traditional data center with the core aggregation access layer. You still might have the VLANs and SVIs, but you do need to have some sort of a DCI data center interconnect between two data centers. So you can use it for just that. Although there is, you know, as we all know in networking, or most of us at least know that there's a lot of issues that come up with trying to direct traffic, you know, in through one data center, it might go, it might hairpin out through the other data center. But there are some situations where you do need a layer two extension between two data centers, even though it's generally not a good idea. So that's one reason why it might be used, even though the rest of the data center is not eVPN. So you can just put it as a as a DCI. But because it gives us that safety rather than like extending right. a VLAN with 802.1Q yeah. tags between the data center and extending your spanning tree domain between those two environments, therefore making two data centers go down should you have a, a broadcast storm or something. Uh, right. you, you have safety now by using VXLAN instead. Yeah, it's safer, but not totally. You know, it's still better yeah. not to have the yeah, yeah the two. Yes. Yeah, but it, it's it's generally it's a it's a more controlled way to do it. And and again, like there's a whole host of other issues non that that have to do with how to get traffic into the endpoints and out out through the right data center, out through the right firewall, and all that. So the, you know, it doesn't solve any of that, but it does give you a safe ish as you can get DCI between data centers, uh, safe ish being a, a relative term. Walk us through some other use cases, Tony. Uh, the other one we're starting to see here and there is in the wired campus. And so typically in the wired campus, you would do like a VLAN per floor, something like that. You know, it may vary yep. depending on how you're doing it, but you do like a v, you know, VLAN 10 is the first floor, VLAN 20 is the second floor, that kind of thing. I've done designs like that for sure, yeah. Yeah, with VXLAN, we could make your VLAN, we could make your VLAN whatever your function is. So like sales could be VLAN 10 and across three floors or um, engineering could be VLAN 20, that kind of thing. So you can, and like if you integrate it with a NAC, you could, um, when you log in, you get placed, you know, when your device logs in to the network, it could get uh, placed into a specific VLAN. And then you could do security rules based on your role instead of your floor. So that's one of the reasons why you might use it. And I think some of the, uh, it's not really relevant to us uh, as network, well, it's relevant to us as networkers, but we don't really have to worry about configuring it when VXLAN is used for the wireless controllers to get uh, access from the wireless uh, APs to the controller or whatever they're doing. So I think some of them use that as well, but that's not as much of our concern because that's all automatically configured. So would, we would be pairing that with some kind of a security control or something like that. That would be uh, typically a solution like that's coming as a, as a package. There's some kind of identity that's going on and then rules that are applied uh, on the fly, depending on when you log in and your endpoint is verified and all of that uh, as you come on board the network. Yeah. And there's even, I think Cisco was even doing some extensions to the VXLAN standard. There's a bunch of uh, reserved bits and they were going to use them. And I think they use, uh, I know they use it for uh, ACI, but to take that concept and move it into campus VLANs where you would have security group policies based off of, of a part of the header. So you can build mm -hmm. rules on that. So I don't know how far that's gone along. And I think VXLAN in the, in the campus is still pretty rare. I don't, really see it a lot. I think most people just go for the standard VLAN per floor, that kind of design, but we're starting to see it more and more. And, and the benefit there, again, is being able to put you into a security zone 
based off of your identity instead of your location. Yeah, or it's baked into someone's larger yeah. security scheme, you know, whatever they're doing. It's VXLAN under the hood. You don't really know or care as a network engineer yeah. that it's VXLAN necessarily, but that does happen to be what's happening uh, under the hood as you build out this design. I've, I've seen that come up a lot. Okay, so we got uh, we got DCI. We've got um, uh, data center gives us that uh, that scale. We can go safely. We goes going back to the original point of it, be motioning anywhere we need across a data center because you got to have that layer two adjacency, but still being able to do that across the layer three boundary. Any other big use cases that we missed, Tony? Well, you know, we as networkers, we've kind of long complained. We've been very salty about the fact that we've had to extend our VLAN since 2006 to every rack. <laughs> salty is a good word. Yeah. Yeah. It was super salty. And I think we just have to accept the fact that we're going to have to provide every network everywhere, everywhere in our data center. So not only is it vMotion and live migration that benefit from this, but it's also just more convenient to place your workloads because most of our workloads are going to be based off of a subnet. And it's just nice to be able to put your workload anywhere in your data center versus, oh, the, you know, this, this particular application can only be in rack one because that's where rack one subnet is. And we want to build security rules to keep everything in the subnet. We just have to do it. And one point I also wanted to bring up, there is still a misconception out there. I still run into this from time to time. There's a misconception that VMware removed the layer two adjacency requirement for vMotion. They have not. You still need, if you want to vMotion a VM from one hypervisor to another, that same layer two segment needs to exist on both hypervisors. So uh, we still have that adjacency requirement. What VMware did, and I think about 2012, so over 10 years ago, when you do vMotion, you have to set up a backend network to handle the data that transmits kind of like a VM tunnel, so to speak, that transmits all the bits for that VM from one hypervisor to another. And that's a VM kernel network. And uh, it used to be that they all had to be on the same subnet. Now your hypervisors on this backend network can be on different subnets. They did some stuff on the backend mm -hmm. for, that, for that to happen. So that's what they removed. They didn't, you still need to have the same VLAN connected to the same hypervisors. So that, that's still there and it always will be. Uh, it, it, something just popped to mind, and that was back when VXLAN was becoming a thing, there was talk about, ah, oh, VLANs are limited. You can only have about 4,000 VLANs because it's just you know, not that many bits to for the .1Q tag. Uh, but with VXLAN, you can have, I think it was like 16 million different VNIs, VXLAN network identifiers. Yeah, sixteen million uh, seven hundred seventy-seven thousand two hundred sixteen. I have that number memorized. <laughs> That's the words of an instructor, right there, boy. <laughs> no, I mean, no one. Probably no one, or maybe there's a couple of people in the world that might actually need sixteen million. But I mean, if you could cut that down to you know tens of thousands of uh, of VXLAN segments, is that something you're you're aware of that a lot of people are using that feature? Well, so here's the thing with that. You know, I see it in a lot of marketing materials and a lot of like talks about VXLAN. It's like you get these 16 million segments. We're going to abbreviate to 16 million. <laughs> um, it's two to the 24th power. So two to the 12, you know, uh, VLANs are 12 bit. So that gives us 4,096. We just basically, you know, there's reserves. We just, we just say 4,000. Same thing for VXLAN, two to the 24th power, 16 million. We'll just leave it at that. But here's the problem. Every it, it, with a physical switch, every VXLAN segment needs a local VLAN to forward the traffic. So that effectively limits us to 4,000 VLANs, even though we're using VXLAN. 
There are some ways around it, but they get really complicated. You'll have like switch specific VLANs or ephemeral VLANs, which is actually how ACI does it under the hood. It greatly complicates the configuration. But fortunately, most organizations don't even come close to 4,000 VLANs. So it's not it's not really a benefit, but it's also not holding us back in, mm. in terms of being uh, stuck to 4,000 VLANs. But the hyperscalers, they use virtual switches entirely. So, you know, they do make, um, if they're using VXLAN, they can take benefit of that because they're terminating the VXLAN packet on the on the hypervisor or the container or whatever. But um, if we're, we're talking about data centers, we're talking about physical switches, every VXLAN segment needs a local VLAN. <laughs> but there's still a lot of other benefits to, to EVP and VXLAN. Like uh, one of the big ones I think it's kind of under-talked about is we can have more than two spines. Now that opens up a whole world of possibilities there because think about, you know, why do we have chassis switches for our aggregation or core? typically because we can only have two of them in, in, in some sort of MLAG, VPC, VSS configuration. So if we only have two, if we lose one, we have no more redundancy and we've lost 50% of our forwarding capacity. So we typically will want to buy a chassis, which has all of that redundancy built in, redundant supervisor modules, redundant line cards, redundant fabric modules. So we want as much redundancy as we can get since we're stuck with two. But in EVPN, VXLAN, we can do three, four, five, six, typically six to eight is the max. And it's generally the uh, only limitation of the uplinks. So with that, if we have three, you know, maybe I don't need to buy a chassis. I can buy a much cheaper top of rack device because if I lose one, mm -hmm. I still have redundancy and I've only lost a third of my forwarding capacity. If I get four, I lose one. I've only lost a quarter of my forwarding capacity and I still have plenty of redundancy. So having the ability to do that opens up a lot of possibilities, makes makes potential builds, especially smaller builds, much cheaper, potentially, because we don't have to buy those big chassis. We also have, uh, there's multi-tenancies built into eVPN. So we can have security. Th there's interesting things we can do with security with that way. You know, we tend to think of multi-tenancy as being uh, like Coke and Pepsi, making sure that they can't do anything with each other. But it also could be our DMZ versus our internal network or sales versus whatever. So we can start to split up these uh, networks. And if we want them to communicate, we can put them, we can route them externally through a firewall. Yeah, well, I mean, similar benefits to what you would get with with VLANs, um, but it's just VXLAN extended out to yeah. layer three. So we get that nice network design that doesn't have that huge layer two blast radius, uh, but in, yeah. in the VXLAN, I mean, it sounds like very similar thinking to me. It's a little bit, there's, there's a, that extra, there's that extra separation there. So like if I have VLANs and I have one VLAN and I have another VLAN, um, yeah, you can separate them up by, by VRFs, but we, yeah. it's, it's inherent to VXLAN. So you, you've got to put your layer two segments attached to some sort of v, or VRF, uh, at least if you're going to do uh, routing through it, if you're going to do IRB. So the Anycast mm -hmm. gateway is going to be belonging to a VRF and, so yeah, that's there. Um, there's also scalability. Typically with EVP and VXLAN, the Leafs are gonna be your, your first hops. So your default gateway is gonna be on the Leafs. So all the traffic doesn't have to go to the aggregation layer or the collapse core. It can be switched right at that Leaf and go back down, or, or maybe it might have to hit a spine. But again, you can have multiple spines, but more than two spines. So you, you've got some, some scalability there. And then it, you can generally scale out an EVPN network to much larger than you could uh, a collapse core or core aggregation access. 
because you could do pods, multipod. So a pod is a set of leaves and spines. And then you can aggregate that through super spines. Sometimes we call that as five stage clove versus a three stage clove. And you can, and even some really big networks that go up to seven stage, I've heard, I don't know that there are bigger and certainly (laughs) those aren't the only uh, configurations out there for high port density, but uh, but very common because you get very predictable network forwarding characteristics across that sort of a topology. You know exactly how long it's going to take you to get from in a three stage leaf to spine to leaf and then, you know, back to the, uh, and then up to your destination. Uh, in a five stage, you're just you, you're adding another spine layer in there, and so you can scale to an absolutely massive port count with an uh, you know even bigger number of virtual machines or containers that you're communicating with. And a lot of folks, it's it's a math problem. How many machines do I need to support? Okay, I can fit X number of machines, uh, virtual machines or containers on a physical box, uh, and that's going to need how many physical ports? Okay, I'm going to have two uplinks. And uh, to, to then have a leaf spine network that's of thus and such a forwarding characteristic, like an oversubscription uh, number between layers, I'm going to need to have how many interconnects at what speeds. And then you figure out that math and you, you can do it with a three stage or, or, oh, I need to go to a five stage now because of how the math works out. And it'll scale absolutely massively. And like I said, I've heard of as I've heard of as big as seven. I haven't heard of anybody doing anything bigger than a seven stage, which is yeah, that would hard be, to get my head around. It's that's a massive, massive yeah, network. That would be really big. And still, the whole thing is is any VLAN anywhere. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, Tony, we've had a bunch of descriptions here of you know who who might need this. Some of the use cases. Uh, but does everybody need this? Should the whole world be heading to uh, EVPN and VXLAN as kind of the standard build, sort of like we evolved to, you know, VLAN some number of years ago? Is VXLAN the next stage and we should all be doing this? Well, the question comes up when it's time to do a network refresh. And that's usually when you're you're going to make these decisions. And in the data center, we typically refresh all the switches at the same time or roughly at the same time. And uh, whenever you do a network refresh, it's a, it's a fair question to ask. Do we want to move to EVP and VXLAN? Um, if you are already doing it, you're probably just going to continue to do it in your refresh. We're starting to see some of those uh, uh, crop up now. But most of the time when I'm approached as an instructor, I've got a group of students who are doing a network refresh. And they're either considering EVP and VXLAN or, or they made the choice. So if you have a smaller network, let's say six switches, even 10 switches, probably not a good idea to go to EVPN because it does have a higher learning curve. It's a more complicated configuration, much more complicated configuration. And there's maybe no benefit to doing it. If you've only got two switches as your core aggregation layer, you're doing a collapsed core and you're not going to go to three, then you know that's one benefit that it's not there. And it's a it's a more complicated troubleshooting. So you know it's all fun and games until you can't ping your default gateway. Hmm. Let's pause the conversation for a message from sponsor Pessler. If you're a regular podcast listener, you've heard countless mattress ads. Now, Packet Pushers is not the kind of podcast where you'd hear a mattress ad, but maybe this is the closest we'll get. The thing is, the only time you really think about your mattress is when it causes you aches and pains. That's why your choice of mattress is one of the most important decisions you can make. It's the same thing with monitoring. Your monitoring solution shouldn't cause you any aches, and you shouldn't need to think about it. It's one of your most important decisions as an IT professional. Pessler PRTG monitoring software has been on the market for over 20 years and has over 500,000 users worldwide. Pessler PRTG hosted monitor is their cloud-based solution, which means Pessler takes care of updates, backups, and maintenance, and you just focus on monitoring. It's vendor agnostic with support for SNMP, WMI, flow protocols, and much more. 
Setup and configuration is quick. You can be monitoring within minutes without even installing any hardware. You get real-time dashboards and customizable notifications, and pricing is flexible. You have the choice of monthly or annual subscriptions based on the number of devices you need to monitor, so you can scale as needed. And Pestler is giving new customers 50% off their monthly subscription for the first three months. Go to prtg.com. That's prtg.com and use the promo code PACKETPUSHERS, all one word, to take advantage of this offer. And make sure you always sleep soundly on a comfy mattress with a comprehensive monitoring tool. This offer ends October 2023. Now back to the podcast. So, okay, so we're kind of thinking about it from a size perspective, in which case I could stick with a traditional design. And there's there's some cutoff point there. We got to figure out what the trade-offs are between... Yes, for the benefits I get from EVPN and VXLAN, I'm willing to take on the complexity and make it go. Smaller networks, you're, that's, you're probably not going to get uh, find that trade-off point. You need some amount of scale before you're going to get a win there. Another point you made, Tony, was typically when I'm doing a network refresh, I'm updating the switches more or less all at once. Well, are you saying that every switch in the network has to support VXLAN in some way before I can run it successfully? No, not necessarily. It's easier if it does. There are some situations, well, anytime you plug a blade switch into an EVPN network, you know, the blade switch doesn't do VXLAN typically. So you're just passing uh, VLANs down. So you can connect older, more legacy switches that are not participating in EVPN fabric. You can connect them to your EVPN network and just light up the VLANs and pass them down. So you can do it that way. But generally speaking, you know, these network refreshes, if we're going to do EVPN, then most of it's going to want to be, you know, capable of VXLAN EVPN. It could also be, and I, I although I can't readily think of a scenario here, but it could also be that uh, the switch in question that hasn't been updated yet doesn't know much about VXLAN. It'll happily pass that VXLAN packet. It just doesn't isn't specially equipped to do anything with it but it'll forward yeah. it as a transit switch with no trouble correct yeah it'll it'll for the for the traffic and as long as you have a way to get the evpn routes through that switch so either peering as with the switch is just a transit for the peering traffic or maybe the switch does can pass evpn routes it can be, become like a route server uh, then you can do it that way too um it's I generally, I really haven't seen that. Mo the most of the time, when you've got a non-EVPN VXLAN capable switch, that's typically a blade switch that's pat or some sort of older access switch that you've got a you know, bunch of stuff still connected to. Maybe it's like a a Nexus five thousand with some fexes uh, attached to it, and they don't want to replace the fexes. And so you can do it that way. But um, for the most part, yeah, it, it, yeah, we can pass VXLAN traffic with just a layer three switch. Yeah, no, I was kind of thinking about that, it's similar to like uh, SRV6 uh, source routing or uh, segment routing with IPv6, where it's not like every switch has to be able to manipulate that IPv6 header that's got the segment route information in. It can just pass it along. Same thing with yeah. segment routing MPLS. The intermediate switches don't necessarily need to know anything about it because the uh, the, the label stack is popped on at uh, at the head end and then inject it into the core, and uh, they don't know that it was done with, with segment routing. So I think we have a similar situation here. Although I'm tilting at windmills to some degree, Tony, I, I realize that there's not, um, I, don't, I don't think this is a very likely scenario in most cases, but yeah. just, so, just so people know that their old, their dumb old switches will be happily pass uh, VXLAN along without needing to know anything about it being VXLAN. It's just another packet. 
Yeah, which brings up another good point. Like when we're when we're building these networks, they're almost always going to be the same vendor. Like, um, you know, EVPN is an open standard. VXLAN is an open standard. And for the most part, the they sh- you know, theoretically, they should be pretty compatible. But w- especially with a data center network, they're very homogenous. So it's going to be, you're going to build a, if you're going to pick Cisco, you're going to build a Cisco EVPN VXLAN network. If you're going to pick Arista, you're going to build an Arista EVPN VXLAN network. The only times that I've heard of any customers going with multi-vendor is one data center will be one vendor and the other data center will be a different vendor. But within the data center, they're using the same vendor. Although in theory, there is, as you said, it's an open standard, so you should have multi-vendor compatibility. Last I knew, and I haven't checked in on this for a while, that really wasn't the case. Interoperability for EVPN VXLAN kind of sucked. Yeah, I mean, I think it's gotten better, and I you know, there's definitely been some uh, plug and play tests where they like they they put some vendors and plug them in and see if they could pass the routes and the packets and stuff. And yeah, it you know probably works. It probably you could, but then you've got your automation. Like if you're going to be using a vendor specific automation, like you've got DCNM for Cisco or whatever they're calling it now, and then you've got Cloud Vision for Arista. Like who handles what? If you're going to be doing that, and you've got to do some sort of automation for EVPN VX land. So, I mean, theoretically, it could be done. But if you run into a problem, you know, if you build it a data center with one fabric, then you you can call that vendor and you can work through the problem. But if you've got two different vendors in that fabric, then you've got two new vendors. You've got two vendors who might be pointing fingers at each other. And mm. you know, we've all like probably been on a call with VMware and Cisco or VMware and some other network vendor and like trying to figure out why, or uh, uh, a network vendor and a, or server vendor and a load balancer vendor. So I've been on those calls before and it's, it's just much easier to troubleshoot if you have one vendor. Yes. And I I don't know if anybody that's necessarily trying to build that multi-vendor EVPN uh, fabric, but yeah, but so, so I'm with you. All right. You said um, automation is a must, and I, I want to talk about that in a minute, but we need to set up why that is first. Maybe walk us through, Tony, how I would build an EVPN fabric. Whenever I build an EVPN fabric or whenever, whenever I teach it, I teach it in four steps. Topology, underlay, overlay, and EVPN services. So the topology is just the switches, which ones you pick, how they're connected, and they're typically in a leaf spine or leaf spine super spine topology. They don't have to be, but that's you know it's generally the best way to do it. And uh, how many spines do I have? You know, taking into account like uh, I get better redundancy with three or more. So I generally try to do th- at least three spines. But by spines, you mean spine switches making up the spine? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So three spine switches or more, again, just for the extra redundancy there. It doesn't always have to be that way, but that's generally what I, I try to do. Picking the hardware, making sure that it can do the VXLAN for layer two and layer three, which mo- most of it does. If you want to do something called EVPN multi-homing, which is you're connecting a, a host to two different switches without MLAG. Some switches won't do it, some will. Like a Cisco Nexus 9300 EX FX FX2 FX3, for whatever reason, they can't do it, and I'm not sure why. You know, you could still do VPC and get the same effects for the most part. So, you know, picking the switches, picking the topology, et cetera, pretty, pretty basic stuff, how they're cabled, you know, stuff we've all done before. Now on the spine switches, Tony, do I, how much do I care about VXLAN? What, what do I need to know in the spine switches? The spine switch is just kind of dumb passing traffic or are they part of the VXLAN topology and are knowledgeable about what's going on at that level? They, from the, from the data plane, they know nothing. They, they're just passing packets. 
So we generally will not terminate any of the VXLAN segments at the spines. We're just passing IP traffic back and forth. They generally will operate as either route reflectors or route servers, depending on whether you do eBGP or IBGP. So they are aware of the routes. When I do troubleshooting, most of the time, the problem is in the control plane. So it's like either, um, either the leaf hasn't learned the MAC address, the leaf hasn't generated a type two route based on the MAC address, or the type two route hasn't made it to the spines or from the spines to the other leaf. So the, they generally, the spines are going to know about the routes. They just won't know about the, yeah, the data plane. They'll know about the control plane. So you can mm -hmm. still do show commands on the spines. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, you could just have a separate route server or separate route reflector. But uh, I think in most cases for the most of the vendors, we're just going to use the spines because they've got the capacity and that's they're right in line and it's a it's a good place to put them. Okay, good to know. So we're talking about topology. We've talked about leaf spine, AKA that would be a, a three-stage uh, clove fabric or leaf spine superstein would be a five-stage, uh, making sure we nail down the hardware right. We've got uh, uh, ASICs that can deal with this traffic. And uh, and as you said, we're pretty much gonna be single vendor with whatever we're building here. So that that's right. my step one is the topology. Yep. Quick conversation too. It's a, you know, it's not something you have to like agonize too much about. It's, it's going to be dictated by how many endpoints you've got, how many switch ports you need and uh, what your budget is. So a pretty, pretty easy, quick com uh, conversation. There's not a whole lot of variability there. Again, dictated by your workload. Okay. Then we have the underlay. We do have some choices to make here. So what the underlay does, and the only thing the underlay does is provide IP connectivity from loopback to loopback. So every leaf and spine is going to have a loopback and all the leafs are going to have, typically are going to have an extra loopback. So uh, the leafs and spines, every one of them will have loopback zero generally. It doesn't have to be loopback zero, but by convention, that's loopback zero. And then all the spines will generally have loopback one as well. So we just need to provide IP connectivity from loopback to loopback. And to do that, we need to pick a routing protocol. Yeah. And we have a lot of choices here. We could do OSPF. We could do IBGP, EBGP. You could even do ISIS. And then the other choice you have to make is, are we going to do head-end replication or multicast for our flood frames? When we have flood frames, we still have to distribute them to the other VTEPs. We can either flood them to a multicast address, or we can replicate them at the ingress leaf and then use a, a automated list uh, through one of the BGP route types, type three routes, and distribute them, make a copy, send a copy, make a copy, send a copy. A bunch of unicasts, in other yeah. words, in that model. Yeah. So, okay, well, so let's back up a second. Before we get into the uh, you know, replicating frames that need to be broadcast or multicast, the, under, the point of the underlay and these loopback addresses that you were talking about mm -hmm. is we need to create a fabric that we can use to connect VXLAN tunnel endpoints together. So it's yes. like for people that have never done this before, but you've done tunneling, you've stood up a GRE tunnel, you've stood up an IPsec tunnel, your tunnel endpoints need to be able to route to each other, right? You've got to learn where those tunnel endpoints are somehow or another. It's the same thing here. Um, we're building an underlay. There's nothing different about it. We're, the overlay is going to be VXLAN tunnels. The underlay means we have to have a robust fabric that these loopback addresses can be used to peer VXLAN tunnel endpoint to VXLAN tunnel endpoint. And how is the fabric, how are all the switches going to learn where these loopback addresses are? 
some kind of a routing protocol. As Tony said, OSPF, BGP, we could use IBGP or EBGP. We could even use ISIS. ISIS used to be in favor. That was a popular choice not all that long ago. It seems to have fallen out of favor to some degree as uh, BGP became data center hotness for a while there. I don't think that's also starting to fall out of favor for some people uh, too. And uh, maybe is, is OSPF your first choice, Tony, if you were building the underlay? You know, you know, sometimes it depends on the vendor. Like I think Cisco still, their kind of default best practice is OSPF as the underlay and IBGP is the overlay, whereas Arista does EBGP for the underlay and overlay. But they all, as far as I know, accept, you know, just about any reasonable combination that you can come up with. I really, really like OSPF if you're labbing because it keeps it, if you do BGP for both the underlay and overlay when you're labbing, then sometimes it's hard to keep track of what yeah. part of the BGP config is for the underlay and what part is for the overlay. A hundred percent. It can get so easily confusing, especially when you're tired. Yeah. You separate yeah. underlay and overlay into different routing protocols. What you're looking at is a little easier to keep track of. Also with OSPF, most of the vendors will let you use IP unnumbered. And that way you don't have to assign an IP address the for the interfaces that connect the leaf to the spine so that's you know that's one of the challenges one of the reasons why we want to do automation is to just ip those point-to-point -point links put some slash 31s in there with ospf it's you the the configuration for every interface is the same typically turn it into a layer three port you no know, switch port give it ip unnumbered loopback zero and ip ospf area zero ip ospf network point-to-point -point. like very, very simple configs. Mm. It just throw everything. If you're labbing, you can throw it into area zero. And if you want to do it in production, you could do different areas if you're worried about scalability. Although today, OSPF scales to much higher than what we were used to our limits being. Like, you know, it used to be like 50 OSPF routers in an area was like pushing the limits. But that was when control planes for these switches, for these routers were like in the dozens of megahertz on a single yeah. CPU. <laughs> right. <laughs> now we've got tons, you know, we've got multi gigahertz, multi core control planes. So yeah. I don't know what the scaling limit is for OSPF now, but it's higher than it used, it, much higher than it used to be. I think it, it, well, it depends on, it depends on who you talk to and what their network is like, but assuming a fairly stable network, then I mean, hundreds of routers is. is yeah. Is this will be a very sure. stable network. Yeah, of course. Yeah. All the action happens in the overlay, the underlay routing tables will be extremely static. They should not change, except unless you like bring a switch down, cut a link, do an upgrade, but and your day-to-day -day operation. Bad. Yeah, yeah, something, yeah. Yeah, something but the, like this, the underlay network does not have any of the endpoint routes in it. So this network is going to be very, very stable. So our requirements for the underlay routing protocol are generally not very high. We don't need them to be like super responsive or or generally we don't need them to be like, we're not asking them to do a lot. Hmm. We just loop back zeros in the routing table. That's it. Or loop back zero and loop back one in the routing tables. And that's pretty much it for the most part. Now, going back to your head and replication or multicast in the underlay problem, the, the issue there is we've got an ethernet frame that uh, is going to need to be broadcast or multicast to a bunch of different endpoints on that uh, on that layer two network that it's a part of, meaning when it gets encapsulated in VXLAN and normally if it's a unicast frame, it would be sent across one from uh, across one VXLAN tunnel from VTAP to VTAP, just, just one hop. But now we've got a frame that's got to go to a bunch of different destinations. And so we've got to replicate that frame somehow. 
If it's multicast, we'd be building a multicast tree and then everybody would be participating in the multicast tree and would receive a copy of that and all of that stuff. That's the, the normal multicast way of doing things, which has its own annoying complexities. And uh, the other way to do it, Tony, you were talking about head and replication, where we're not going to use multicast as a, as a protocol and make that happen. We're going to instead know this a copy of this uh, frame needs to be delivered to these 17 different endpoints that live across these 12 different uh, VTAPs. And so I've got to make uh, 12 copies and send them out and then have it, you know, broadcast out uh, one copy at a time, which sounds, if you don't have multicast to do that for you, it sounds like there's got to be some special magic happening. So you know how many copies you need to make and uh, what VTAPs you need to send it across. Yeah, and unfortunately, EVPN takes care of all of that. So if you do head in replication, it uses one of the route types, type three routes, to determine where I need to send this flood frame. So the, the ingress VTAP gets the flood frame. It just looks in the layer three, or it looks in the uh, type three routing table. Then it knows exactly which other VTAPs it's going to have to make a replica of that frame and send it to. So um, you don't have to maintain manual flood lists or any of the complications that arise from that. It's just automatically handled by EVPN. Um, for multicast, it would... Oh, is that the typical way it's handled these days then? Is with uh, with type three routes or is multicast still an option that a lot of people use? I think it, one each vendor has their preference. I think Cisco um, typically recommends multicast. Arista typically recommends uh, head and replication. I don't know what Juniper recommends or if they even have a choice, uh, but they're they're all flexible in, in which way you can go. Head and replication obviously is simpler because you don't have to worry about having a separate multicast infrastructure. You can just, as long as you got IP unicast, then you're good to go. But the the drawback is when you start getting to some some higher scales, if I have to make a copy, now switches are really good at making copies of frames. So that's not a problem there. It doesn't overhead the CPU doesn't put a lot of overhead on the CPU or anything. They just, they just make copies. They've always been really good at that. The trick is if I have 99 leaves that I need to send a copy of this frame to, I've got to serialize 99 packets into my uplinks and that can congest the link a little bit. It's not generally that bad because they're pretty small usually, but that's just a lot of traffic on the wire. Whereas multicast, now you send it to the multicast infrastructure and then it handles it's a little bit more distributed that way. So multicast might scale better if you have an extraordinarily large number of devices. But on the other hand, head and replication, you can secure those route types. Whereas multicast, like I can put a password on my BGP peering. So I can't just have a rogue uh, network join or you know rogue device join. Whereas multicast, you could go either way. And I think you would be fine in like 99% of the cases either way. One more point about the underlay. Generally, it's not that big of a deal which one you choose. If you're using automation, generally, it's pretty easy to, to switch from one to the other. Like with Arista, they have this uh, Ansible-based utility called AVD, and it's just one line. It's like, do I want EBGP? Do I want OSPF? And also now, most of the vendors support IPv6 unnumbered for BGP, which is a cool thing you can do. You don't have to worry about uh, putting an IP address on the point-to-point -point link. So a couple of things there. But uh, yeah, I think yeah for the for the overlay, it's either IBGP or EBGP, and we're just peering between loopback zero. That's all we're doing there. And now we're exchanging. What what are we exchanging? You've talked about type two routes, type three routes, 
Uh, my understanding is that we are exchanging MAC addresses effectively. That's that's the NLRI bit of reachability that we're trying to exchange here so that remote switches can learn about remote MAC addresses, but, but in a different way than they do with the way a standard switch works by observing and learning and figuring out uh, in, in populating the bridging tables port by port as it sees frames come through. Now we've got this, basically it's a manual mechanism for populating those tables. Yeah, so uh, what the, the one thing we're doing is we're doing, even if we're using BGP as the underlay, this is a separate BGP peering session. So they would show up as separate, you know, established. So you want to make sure that you get established and it's you're peering from loopback zero to loopback zero. So, you know, one of the tricks is if you're doing um, eBGP, you need to make sure it's uh, multi-hop. So, you, you know, set the multi-hop because, because typically eBGP is sets the TTL to one or whatever. Yes. So we're, we're exchanging and we're doing MP BGP here. Whereas the underlay could be just regular BGP4. This is MPBGP. We're adding address families onto BGP. Multi-protocol BGP, right. right. Okay, so we've got, now we've got a new address family that we're adding for EVPN. Right, and that's the EVPN address family. And it's, I think there's 12 or 13 route types now. Routes one through five are unicast and the rest of them are multicast, is, is if, I, if I remember correctly. But I know one through five are the unicast routes. And you're right, uh, type two routes, the type we typically work with, are both MAC address or MAC and IP combinations. And we're exchanging that reachability. So for example, a switch learns a new MAC address. So it puts it into the layer two forwarding table, just like it always has. But with EVPN, that, that action also triggers a generation of a type two route and it gets sent and distributed to all the other leafs and they take that type two route and they install it into their forwarding tables if they have that layer two segment. Um, if it's a if it's a MAC IP combination, it will take the type two route um, and install the MAC address in its forwarding table, and it will take the IP address and uh, install it in its host forwarding table. So it's slash thirty two. So that's the type two route. And when you say address. install it into the forwarding table, if we were to look at a traditional forwarding table, we would see that the it's forwarding through a port. This is the port that mm -hmm. I'm going to forward this frame through for reachability. Do we still see a port or do we see a VTAP now? What does it look like? You, yeah, you do. So like if I did a show VLAN, a show MAC address table VLAN 10, or whatever the equivalent is on your, on your, um, on your switch, doesn't matter what the vendor is, you'll see like MAC address AA on port one, MAC address BB on port two, MAC address CC, VXLAN or something like it. And basically we're treating VXLAN as a separate layer two port so that the layer two forwarding table knows, okay, if I have a MAC address destined for CC, which says VXLAN, it's going to kick it up into the VXLAN forwarding engine. And that's when it'll add the encapsulation, do a lookup in the type two tables, and then figure out which VTAP to forward it to. But from if you look at the local VLAN, local layer two forwarding is done the exact same if all the MAC addresses are local. But what we do is we generate a route type when we learn a MAC address and we distribute that to all the other switches for both layer two and layer three if we learn a layer three address on that uh, endpoint. Very good. The, this, there's a lot going on there. And yeah. it also speaks to, again to... Uh... Part of why you got to make sure your switch can actually handle this. You know, some of this is yeah. happening 
you know, in the ASIC, uh, some of this is software-based, control plane-based, so you've got to have, uh, for example, a version of BGP that supports this address family and uh, and has kept up over the years so that all, because a lot of these route types that you're talking about, Tony, they keep, they've been added over the years. This didn't, yeah. you know, EVPN did not come out fully formed from the IETF in, in the beginning. It's uh, It's grown over time. Yeah, especially with the, if you want to do multicast in the overlay, if you want to have tenant multicast, there's been work done. I don't even know if it's standardized yet, but there's been work done in the EVPN working group the, or task force or whatever to add these different route types to make multicast forward better in the overlay. So I'm not talking about underlay multicast. I'm talking about like if I'm a client and I'm plugged into a switch and I want to join a multicast group, do multicast routing, layer two, layer three, et cetera. Then there's, those are types six through whatever, but one through five are unicast. The co most common one we deal with is a type two route. Um, without going into the details of it, uh, type two routes are endpoint reachability. We'll just put it there to make it simple. Type three routes are, if you're doing head end replication, type three routes tell all the VTAPs where to send the flood frames to make a copy and to make a copy of a flood frame and then send it to which to which VTAPs. Type five is if I have uh, an unlearned host. So I'm going to send a packet to a host that is not known by the fabric, but it's connected to the fabric. Where do I find it? Well, I can find it on these VTAPs. It also is where I can find my external routes. So this whole stuff, this whole network needs to be connected to an external network somehow typically peering through layer three, how do I propagate those externally learned routes internally into the fabric? And those are the type five network routes. So type two for endpoint reachability, type three for flooding, type five for external networks. Then you have type one and four, which are for that EVP and multi-homing multi I was telling you about. Okay. And probably an advanced topic, we can, we can skip one through four for now. <laughs> or one in four, not one, through, one in four for now. Yeah, there's a lot, and we're not going to remember it all in, uh, you know, in one podcast anyway. Um, now, if the overlay can be IBGP or eBGP, is is it again different vendors recommend different things, or is there a, a more typical design? Yeah, it's it's not so much of a recommendation. It's just kind of like you know the the vendors aren't like you must do it this way. This is the only way to do it. It's kind of like you just need a default. And the vendors have different defaults. So uh, Arista, like I said, has eBGP as the overlay and eBGP as the underlay. I think Cisco is still OSPF as the underlay and eBGP or iBGP as the overlay. But you know, if you go to Cisco and say eVPN underlay and overlay, or if you go to Arista and say OSPF as the underlay, iBGP, you know, they'll all accept it. They're, they're, they'll support you on it. But they they just have their own kind of defaults. This is our design guide. We've got to make a choice. So here's a choice. And generally, they're fine. There's you know, there's not going to be a huge difference between them operationally. So we've got our topology, step one. We've built an underlay, uh, step two. Now we've added the overlay, uh, step three, which I believe, Tony, if I haven't, if I'm not getting ahead of you, takes us to step four EVPN services. So yes. I, I would have thought we were done at step three, but <laughs> uh, services reminds me of a service provider network like with MPLS, where there is a bunch of different MPLS-based applications I can run on top of this MPLS forwarding design that I've built. It feels like something similar here. It's not quite services as in like applications. It's just networks. Uh, you know, what networks am I providing through this EVPN fabric? And, uh, you know, the, the first thing, you know, we, we have, we've got a, a hierarchy of, of concepts here. 
And the first thing which is new to us is the concept of a tenant. So um, it actually doesn't show up in the configs anywhere, but the concept of I've got a tenant A, tenant B, I've got Coke and Pepsi, prod and dev, sales and engineering. So you, you can have, you're going to need at least one tenant. Or you can kind of skip the tenant concept entirely and just go right to VRFs. Like most of the automation systems will include the concept of a tenant, even if you just have one tenant and one VRF. So that's a choice you can make there. But most of the time, we're going to at least have a tenant in there. The VRF, just like an IP VRF that we normally think of, and that's going to be, uh, and we're going to attach our layer two networks to that VRF. The layer two networks attached to the VRF can route between each other unrestricted. But between two different VRFs, there's no communication unless we either route externally, like through a firewall, or we route leak, which is pretty rare because we want the, if we're going to separate our VRFs, we separate them for a reason. And we generally, if we want them to be able to talk to each other, we want them to go through a firewall. So we have the tenants, we have the VRFs, and we have the stretched VLANs. And we've got some choices there, how we're going to split things up. And we have the concept uh, of a layer two VNI. So that's a layer two segment, a layer two VXLAN segment, and a layer three VNI, which is associated with a VRF. Without going too much into it, we call this symmetric IRB, symmetric integrated routing and bridging. And generally that's what most people will do. So it feels like we're taking the concept of uh, VRFs and applying it or using the VRF constructs that we've had right along and using them in a VXLAN context where yes. we can have, now we can have full multi-tenancy. So we're just, we're just bringing VRFs that we, again, that we've had for a long time and, yeah. uh, and, and, and a applying them to this VXLAN environment that we've built so that we can have traffic separation and so that we can also have uh, distinct route tables and so on. I assume the same, because you were talking yeah. about route leaking and all that. So that that sounds sounds like what we've always had again with VRFs, Tony. Yeah, and you know, the generally the best practice is even if you have one tenant with one VRF, you still put all of your EVPN boarding tables, uh, routing tables into a separate VRF. So if you did a show IP route or the equivalent on any of these devices, you would just see the underlay. You wouldn't see any of the EVPN services. You'd have to do show IP route VRF Coke or show IP mm -hmm. VRF Pepsi in order to see the uh, the host routes in there. So what you're getting at when you talk about EVPN services then is now that I've got this architecture that gives me the ability to separate traffic uh, in a particular way, if I want to support multi-tenancy, I have to make those decisions. And the next part of my design then is what VRFs am I going to have where, um, which tenants are going to live in those VRFs, and how do I move traffic between those tenants, between those VRFs? Uh, right. I, I'm going to I'm going to channel it through a firewall and let the firewall have a security policy that dictates that. Uh, for example, I could on you know for special circumstances leak routes in between. Maybe I need to do that for some reason. I, I can't remember DHCP as being a possible reason why I might want to do that. I don't know if that's right or not. Popped into mind. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think so. But but um, you know, generally, I would I generally tend to recommend against route leaking because you know it, the most of the time, you know, it's not a technical reason. It's just most of the time when we do separate VRFs with EVPN, they're security zones. Yeah, and I don't and I don't want this to talk to that. And then if I if they do talk, I want them to go through a firewall. Mm. And if I route leak at the switch, it's sometimes it's harder to conceptualize how things communicate. 
So generally it's better not to do route leaking with eVPN, but that's that's not a technical decision. That's that's a layer eight decision. All of this leads us to a, back to the point that you made earlier about automation. That is, especially when this gets to any sort of size among the, the, the physical topology, the underlay and getting all those loopbacks uh, known to one another, uh, adding the overlay, all the VTEPs on top and that uh, additional routing protocol and the different route types that are going to be involved. And now services with multi-tenancy that you might be adding to, you do not want to be writing these configurations out by hand. You want to automate that. But what do you mean automate that, Tony? What are you getting at? So we want to specifically, we want to be doing at least configuration generation. So we want to generate these configs. These are complex configs compared to SVIs and VLANs. With SVIs and VLANs, we could do that manually. That's not, never been a real problem in the IT, in the, in the data center world. And that's probably one of the reasons why the data center world has really lagged far behind the rest of IT in terms of automation. We're kind of the last the data center world, we're the last bastion of manual, bespoke, artisanal configurations by doing things by hand. <laughs> um, and, but EVPN is the line in the sand because, like I said, these configurations get very complex. There's, you've got to configure the VLANs might be different from switch to switch. The, uh, the interface VLANs or the Anycast gateways, we've got to make sure that we have the same uh, virtual MAC address on every device. We've got to configure the same Anycast gateways on every device. We've got to do set up the control plane. We've got to set up the data plane. The data plane is going to have to have the VTEP address or the, the loopback address. We have to make sure it's in the routing table. We have to assign every VXLAN segment to a local VLAN. And that's just the, the data plane on the control plane. We have to set up our MAC verfs and our IP verfs. We might be doing EVPN VLAN aware bundles, but every, every leaf is going to need a unique route uh, distinguisher. Every layer two segment is going to need a, a common route target. And all of this is really easy to mess up. You know, ask me how I know. <laughs> right. So, okay. So, so automation then comes in the form of, am I going to do this with, with Ansible? Am I looking to my vendor to provide tooling for me? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's multiple choices that we have, fortunately, in the, in the networking world to figure out how we're going to generate these configs. But you know, the important thing is they're not going to be made by hand unless you're labbing. They're going to be generated through some mechanisms. Uh, so generation, typically we have a data model, which has the relevant information. And then we have a templating system and some sort of engine that takes the two and then spits out a unique config for every device. There are vendor specific tools that do this, like Cisco with DCNM. Uh, I think they call it Nexus Dashboard now. You've got Arista with Cloud Vision. Uh, there's studios that'll generate these, these complex configurations by just going through a simple web form. You've got Abstra from Juniper, which I'm not very familiar with. You've got a you've got a couple of these vendor specific, or in the case of Abstra, of course, it's not vendor specific, but it's it's a vendor provided tool. Or you could go completely open source. You could build Jinja templates with Ansible, and kick you know you've got your own data model that you've made. I've done it before, where you fill in the a YAML file. The Jinja template will take the YAML file, read all the variables, and then plug in all the values and then spit out syntax and you can upload it to the switches directly from there, or you can use a combination. So Arista has a great tool called AVD, Arista Validated Designs. It's built on top of Ansible and it can either work through Cloud Vision, supplementing the Cloud Vision automation, or it can go directly to the switches bypassing Cloud Vision and it has data models. You fill in the values 
And like one of the really cool things that AVD does is we talked about that challenge of all the point to point IP addresses between my leafs and my spines. They need to have unique slash 31s everywhere. Well, you just give it a big chunk of addresses and it will automatically carve it up and automatically assign those, assign those addresses to every interface. And you just you just tell it, use this slash 24, and then it'll chop it up to slash 31s and then apply them to your interfaces. Or you can give it a slash 22 if you need something bigger. So um, some, some method, and we've got a lot to choose from, we've got to generate these configs because it is unmanageable. I, I, I'm, I'm just thinking about the IP addresses alone and the sheer yeah. number of them. Even in small lab environments, it's so easy to fat finger an IP address and you oh, can't yeah. get a link to come up or whatever it is. And you realize you did a transposition or got the third octet wrong or whatever it is. You know, my goodness. Right. So automation is, uh, is the answer here because the machines aren't going to mess it up. As long as you tell right. the machines the right thing to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Computers are great because they do exactly what you tell them to do. Right. Computers are really <laughs> annoying because they do exactly what you told them to do and not what you meant them to do. Oh, uh, Okay. So, so Tony, what other points should we bring up? Well, um, you know, there's fancier things to consider, like ARP suppression, which is widely supported amongst the vendors. And then whether or not you want to do multicast in the overlay, that that support currently is not nearly as universal. So talk with a vendor, ask them, um, do they, if, you, if that's a requirement that you have, talk to them about their support for it, how long they've had the support, um, et cetera. Now, ARP but suppression, think, just that, that's, a, that's a basic one. As you said, it's yeah. widely supported. But that's the idea of just a host going, hey, I need to talk to somebody that's on my network and they throw an ARP out on the wire trying to figure out who that is to map an right. uh, Ethernet frame address to an IP address. And with, with the suppression, that means it doesn't get past that leaf node because the leaf node is going to respond on behalf of wherever the endpoint might be across the fabric somewhere. Am I, am I remembering correct? Yeah, yeah. You know, ARP is who has 10 one, one, 10. And then it gets broadcast, flooded throughout the network until 10.1.1.10 says, oh, I have 10.1.10, you know, 10, you know, I'm Spartacus. But the thing is, usually the fabric already knows where 10.1.1.10 is, so it doesn't have to flood it throughout all the devices. Because EVPN, it, it knows that. Yeah, it's got that yeah. in. It's, uh, it, it, it's been learned already through, uh, well, it would be type twos. Yeah. Right. If it's been silent for a while and the, the address is expired out of the forwarding table, then it expires out of the layer, out of the type two route table. But uh, most of the time it does. And if it does, there's no reason to flood it. So the switch just says, oh, yeah, here it is. It's 10.1.1.10. Here's the MAC address. So it bypasses that flooding mechanism if it knows where it is. If it's in its, you know, if, it, if it's in its routing table and its forwarding table, it'll just, you know, the type 2 routing table, like show BGP EVPN route type MAC IP for Arista. I have that one memorized. <laughs> if it's in that table, then, yeah, I'll just, I'll just tell you what it is without flooding it. So that's what our expression is. And again, that's that's pretty much table stakes for yeah. uh, a VXLAN, EVPN VXLAN environment at this point. Uh, multicast in the overlay, that's a newer thing. So that's something else to be considering. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, how oh, how do I get started <laughs> with all this, Tony? Because I have, again, as we started at the top of the show, I've probably got a network that's doing things. I mean, how yeah. in the world do I get to a point where I can start making EVPN work on my network? Well, you know, you, you make the decision, you know, typically this comes up in a refresh when you're, you know, looking at a new network design, a new vendor, maybe a new uh, set of switches, then you're going to make a decision whether or not you're going to go to EVPN or not. So if you have made the decision that you're going to go to, yes, I'm going to go to EVPN, make sure that, you know, two things, you have to pick the automation 
And then you have to make sure that your team is trained because it does require a new set of skills. Then even if you're using automation to generate the configs, you still have to understand the configs if you're going to do any kind of troubleshooting, effective troubleshooting. Because like I said, it's all fun and games until you can't ping your default gateway. Well, why can't you ping your default gateway? You know, a lot of the time it has nothing to, you know, as we have both, as we both know ad nauseum, sometimes it's not the network. A lot of times it's not the network, mm -hmm. but we have to be able to prove that it's not. And the only way that we can do that with EVPN is to understand the concepts. Like the whole blog, I'll, I'll send you the link to the blog article about how I troubleshoot EVPN networks. And it's usually the control plane, but you have to understand how this, all this stuff works is Admiral Kirk said in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, you have to understand why things work on a starship, which is, I stole that from, from Tom. <laughs> Tom Hollingsworth. Yeah, you've got to, you've got to get the training and you've got to pick your automation. Yeah, I agree with you about the training. Of course, you're an instructor, Tony, so you would say you got to get trained. Right. Of course you would. But right. but you're right. Uh, the, this, for for manager types that are listening to this going, ah, oh, it's just more network stuff. My my team can figure it out. They're smart. Yeah, they are smart. They're also you know very busy, and you're asking them to do a high-profile project involving a lot of money and so on to do this network refresh. Would you, would you send them to class? This is a paradigm shift. This is a, a complex, layered uh, difficult technology to troubleshoot if it doesn't go right. You send them to uh, to training so that they learn how to do this. It's not just, ah, it's an underlay and it's got tunnels now. It's There's more to it than that. There's a lot going on. Uh, new control plane. A lot of folks that are I I doing this are going to be using BGP more than they ever have in their life. That can be a learning curve yeah. for your team as well. Yeah, I'd barely touched BGP before I started on this. And of course, I learned a lot about BGP through this process, but I barely touched it before I started learning EVPN. And, you know, one thing that I wanted to throw in there is that I don't think that EVPN is more difficult to troubleshoot if you know it. Mm. But if you don't know it, it is extraordinarily frustrating to like, because you have no idea what's going on. Any sort of in technology that you don't understand how it works if you're going to try to troubleshoot, it's going to be very frustrating. And I've seen that time and time again, like in the ACI world, ACI is a very complex product. And there was a time when I think Cisco treated it like it wasn't, and there was a lot of unhappy customers. So I just want to make sure people don't, don't repeat those same mistakes with the EVPN. Like uh, the learning curve is higher than SVIs and VLANs, but once you understand it, operationally, it's not that much different, but that requires that understanding first. But, yeah, and, that, and that's the key to me. There's there's a protocol stack here that you have to understand yeah. how each layers of layers of the stack interact with one another to understand, depending on what the problem is, where to look and how to troubleshoot it. And I, I again, I agree with you. It's not like it's rocket science once you've had the training and you know what to expect and what's going on. So you've got those clues um, about where to look and how you would go about troubleshooting the problem. If you haven't had that training, this is your first time looking at an EVPN solution. You're, as I've said before, kind of like a monkey looking at a helicopter. It's like, I, yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm looking at here. This is too complicated. There's too much going on. So tra training is a, is a big deal. Well, okay, Tony, as we wrap this up, we mentioned your podcast at the top of the show. Remind people about your podcast one more time. Yeah, so it's the Network Automation Journey podcast. And it's just me talking for five to 10 minutes um, on some topic that I was thinking about or something like that. No guests or anything. So it's a real easy listen, um, really easy to make because just hit record and talk for a few minutes and then that's it. So 
Uh, you can find it on Spotify. It's the Network Automation Journey podcast. Um, and I've been keeping pretty up pretty regular with it. That's always the, you know, the challenge with podcasts before with, with <laughs> yes. doing that. Um, and just to, you know, to keep in mind with EVPN in general, one, one last point, you know, it's not unlearnable. It is, it's just put in a little bit of time. It doesn't require midichlorians or anything like that. It is, <laughs> it's, it's all learnable. Of course. And Tony, your webs, your blog is the, is datacenteroverlords.com, I think. That, that's correct. Datacenteroverlords.com. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at T Burke at T-B-O-U-R-K-E at, uh, on Twitter. And I am Ethan Banks. You can find me on Twitter at EC Banks, although really you should go find me on LinkedIn because that's where I've been publishing variety of things today. Uh, summaries about industry news announcements and other things that I'm observing going on uh, over on LinkedIn. So you can find me under Ethan Banks. I'm there. And of course, many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog is all at packetpushers.net. That includes our Slack channel. If you go up to packetpushers.net slash Slack, we've got a public open to everybody Slack group, uh, lots of engineers, people that have expertise in networking and cloud that are chatting in there all day long. They're all from all around the world. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Packet Pushers. We are, of course, also on LinkedIn. And you can hear us on Spotify, too, and anywhere that you find fine podcasts. And uh, take a minute and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Supposedly that helps things. Not a lot of people rate, but uh, if you take five minutes and give us a rating, we'd appreciate that. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>